to use a, a shocking word, they're totally brainwashed to think that America's a democracy and they buy into it. They support that. But what happens is when they see democracy as competition at all costs, when they see democracy as a competition to misrepresent your opponent, they, they, just, they just want out. They think it's just hopeless. It's pretty obvious once you think about it, and it's become very clear in recent years, which I think is the reason why the earth has become fertile to these ideas, is that you can only get elected if you have the money to pay for it. You can only get elected if you have the support of a faction. You can yeah. only get elected if you're a member of the elite. And that is another definition of oligarchy. And my father was very worried that if, if everyone thought that elections were what democracy was, they would then become disillusioned with elections and no longer want democracy because that's what everyone thought that you know, democracy was, only elections. If you get sick of democracy thinking that there's nothing more to, to have, then you will naturally say, well, let's have just an authoritarian leader who can sort stuff out, which one hears a lot today. Aristotle is saying that elections are naturally oligarchic. Elections lead to a class of rulers and look around. <laughs> The mechanism of an election, which we associate with democracy in the modern world, is an instrument for running an oligarchy, and that the instrument for running a democracy is a jury. Welcome to this edition of Uncomfortable Collisions with Reality. I'm speaking with Hugh Pope, who has an interesting story to tell us about an interesting book which he's been involved in publishing. Uh, Thank you very much, Nicholas, for having me on. And uh, yes, I've, I've been around a lot. And um, the one thing I missed, I think, doing all this moving around was talking to my father while he was writing a book. We knew he was writing a, a book that he was proudest of in the 1980s. And I, I remember reading it and uh, to my lasting shame, laughing at it and saying to my father, Dad, no one's ever going to do this. This is what, what this kind is, of... Well, that's what, my, that's what my daughter says to me she, in, in crisp words. She says, Dad, no one cares. And, and most of the time she's pretty right, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think children have an allergy to reading on paper what they hear their parents saying. Well, online. that too, that too, yes. But uh, anyway, the, the, the book that he, ha he had written, which is The Keys to Democracy, was the latest of several books he'd written to some acclaim and many translations and success. But no publishers would, would take this book, saying that it was not his subject, it, no one else was talking about it, no one would do it, it was unrealistic and so forth, because it was completely out of left field. No one at that time was talking about sortition or random selection or any challenge to the idea that democracy equaled elections. And it was before the famous moment when uh, Francis Fukuyama announced the end of history and so forth, everyone thought that universal suffrage, once achieved in a fair democratic way, mm -hmm. uh, um, would be the answer to all needs in choosing those who make our decisions for us. And uh, it's taken another 30 years, apparently, for uh, mm. for us to find it. So after my father died in 2019, my mother was going through his enormous library. And in an obscure shelf on the lo lower rows, she found the typescript. And I started reading it again and realized what how a fool I'd been and, and how what, what we'd all missed. Because in the past 10 years, obviously, there's been a huge rise of interest in sortition. I've read, I had read some of those books. So I was able to see that even though a lot of people were talking about the same ideas, my father's approach was still unique and still pretty radical and uh, had a lot of new ideas that were still not yet on the market. So I started uh, editing it and typing it up because we had to retype the whole thing. Um, and then miraculously, uh, Professor Helen Landemore uh, wrote back when I, I asked her, is it worth us printing this up? She wrote back saying, I'm blown away. Uh, please publish this. And if you need it, I will write the preface, which is, is, is like being blessed by a saint, really. I mean, it's, uh, it was a, a remarkable moment, so motivating. And that yeah, is what yeah. led to its eventual publication by Imprint Academic. The funny thing is, um, Nicholas, is that there were a number of people around the world working on sortition. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, uh, people that um, 
brought out the idea of James Fishkin, for instance, in California with his yeah. deliberate polling, and Nick Crosby in uh, with his citizens' juries, um, uh, Peter Dino in Germany with his planning cells. All of these were variations on a random selected, randomly selected theme. Yeah. I think sortition has never disappeared. I found books from the 1930s. One is uh, Le Tirage au Sort in France, um, a, a parliamentarian advocating that the French Assemblée Nationale be turned over to sortition. And yeah. of course, in the 19th century, uh, there were people discussing in great detail Aristotle's uh, accounts of, of how it could be. Um, yeah. And not altogether negatively. So the idea, the idea never disappeared. Perhaps what we needed was a fertile environment in which yeah. it could yeah. take root and blossom. Uh, I'll def make clear what we're talking about by also following up your point about Aristotle. You said before this conversation you didn't want to talk about philosophers, and you're the one who's brought them up. But I'll just let that pass for the moment. Now, Aristotle famously, among us, among us folk who talk about this a lot, Aristotle famously says that he divides government up into government by one, which is a monarchy or a tyranny, government by the few, which is an oligarchy or an aristocracy, if it's done well, and government by the many, and that's a democracy or a think he calls it an ochlocracy if it really degenerates into, into mob rule. Now, the interesting thing which helps us make clear what the hell it is we are talking about to anyone who hasn't worked it out yet is that Aristotle says that the mechanism of an election, which we associate with democracy in the modern world, is an instrument for running an oligarchy, and that the instrument for running a democracy is a jury. Which And, and the way I dis distinguish these two things is, in both cases, we need a smaller group to deliberate. And the two ways to get that, the, uh, speaking in great generalizations, the two ways to get that are to elect them, and that's representation by election or representation by sampling. Why yeah. do they represent why do they represent us in elections? Because they won an election, we voted for them. Why do they represent us in a jury? Because they're like us. They're not us, but they are just like us. And Aristotle is saying that elections are naturally oligarchic. Elections lead to a class of rulers and look around <laughs> because that's Absolutely. very... This, you've touched on something that I think was a primary motivation for my father in writing the book, which was one of definition, uh, taking yes. his lead from Aristotle and also I think the Epicureans to throw in some more philosophy, which I don't know anything about. But um, <laughs> You're among uh, friends. You're among <laughs> friends. We we have another person who may be dropping in called Peyton Bowman, and he, he's a classicist, and I think he does know something about Epicureanism. But anyway, you go yeah. ahead. Yes, because being a classicist, my father had no doubt in his mind that democracy absolutely meant sortition and could only mean sortition, and that the next stop along the spectrum was oligarchy, which was produced by elections. And it's it's pretty obvious once you think about it, and it's become very clear in recent years, which I think is the reason why the earth has become fertile to these ideas, is that you can only get elected if you have the money to pay for it. You can only get elected if you have the support of a faction. You can yeah. only get elected if you're a member of the elite. And that is another definition of oligarchy. And my father was very worried that if if everyone thought that elections were what democracy was, they would then become disillusioned with elections and no longer want democracy because that's what everyone thought that you know, democracy was, only elections. And he thought that if anyone could open up people's minds to the, the, the rest of the participative spectrum where you have random selection of ordinary people coming to take decisions, they would then realize that there were two ways to go. If you get sick of democracy thinking that there's nothing more to, to have, then you will naturally say, well, let's have just an authoritarian leader who can sort stuff out, which one hears yeah. a lot today. But if yeah. you show, as many countries in Europe and uh, actually all around the world experimenting with uh, sortition-based assemblies, you can show that there is another way that is a more open democracy, which also produces very good decisions. So I think that when he when when he set out to write this, the, the book, The Keys to Democracy, he really wanted people to understand that the, the democracy train does not end at elections. Do you want to say a bit more about how you see what he had in mind? I guess 
not because it should give us the blueprint, but just because it helps make clear where he's coming from. Let me put it like this. It's how it would work for an ordinary person like you, whoever is listening. As with jury service, you would get a, a message, a phone call, a letter, saying that you should present yourself for the required period for, say, a citizen's assembly or a citizen's jury or a panel or whatever. Um, in order to make it possible for you, you would get leave from your work, you would get some pay, you would get daycare for your children, you would get IT support, you would get translation if you needed it. And there would be a ranking of things. Communal decisions would be made locally. There would be, uh, in my father's idea, that if you did all decisions by sortition, you would probably have civic duty for every person of about one week a year. And mm. you would have a relatively good chance during your lifetime of reaching the national level, but not not always. Um, yeah. And yeah. his view was that these these assemblies, panels, juries should be quite short in order to preserve that sense of best civic behavior, that sense of uh, altruism that is a real defining feature of the citizens' assemblies that I've attended. And I think people have found it in juries as well, that people actually have this instinct for public service. And this is what I think that citizens' assemblies really bring out. My father's proposal is extremely radical, as I mentioned, in that it uh, aims to bring, as in ancient Athens, sortitional bodies looking after the legislature, the judiciary, and the executive. So the whole of government would be turned, turned over to this. This is obviously very utopian for today's circumstances because yeah. no, no one is there yet. You, and obviously you need people need to want this kind of government. It can't just be imposed. Otherwise you'd yeah. have chaos and, uh, and, and no one would benefit. Yeah. And at the very top of the system where you'd have national government, where I think people who are used to the idea of strongmen or, or prime ministers strutting the stage have most difficulty imagining how it would be, is that he has two proposals, one in his utopia, one in his constitution, uh, either a month, uh, you would serve a month in a kind of special convention center where you would be, uh, every, every day you would be randomly assigned duties, uh, or he has another idea that you you would stay for a year in this in in this sort of government bubble um i think that the, what's very important to, to to note is that this short service is not just to try and keep people from uh, becoming professional it's also to avoid that that real stain on uh, electoral democracy which is the lobbying uh, that is a lot, that is become so easy to do once you have elected representatives and not only do people with uh, strong interests have the opportunity to buy uh, and pay for uh, elected MPs. Once they're in, in power, they can lobby them and uh, you, know, you can have all the lists of interests recorded in, in, the, in Parliament as you like, but uh, it's, it's quite clear that people are very aware of the financial rewards. And uh, in a sortition-based system, this really, uh, it evaporates, it can't happen. And neither can nepotism. So it, mm. overall, it's a, it's, it's a beautiful intellectual idea. The problem is, of course, how, how are we going to get there from here? Yeah. Well, I, as you spoke about, you know, how people sort of look around for the next prime minister or president, something that has really occurred to me that we're basically always looking for a messiah. That's how politics works. Everyone knows how dysfunctional it is. And every now and again, you get uh, a, a hero who would probably have been hugely dysfunctional at other times. <laughs> so Churchill is an example of that. You know, Churchill made appalling errors and he, he was time. also quite, quite a politically incorrect person. But the moment yep. that he came into his own was the moment where England was at war or Britain yep. was at war. And That's my right. father tries to explain this uh, an essential difference between types of leadership. He says you have uh, a spectrum of organizational activity, ranging from uh, the, the, the absolutely optional, like you're going to a restaurant. And if you go to a restaurant, you are going there on the terms of the restaurant. You get a menu, you choose what you want. You don't have very much choice. Your only choice is you can leave yeah. the restaurant, right? Yeah. And in the middle, you have a kind of slightly more uh, cooperative things, like say a, a workplace where you come together briefly, but you will have your, your home. And then at the other end, you, you get to your family and you cannot leave your family very easily anyway. So you have all these things. So a spectrum of activities where you, where you have more or less options. And in the same way, you have um, leadership. You, you go from one kind of leadership that Churchill showed in, in the war that he could excel at is team leadership. And there is a time when a nation which would normally uh, need 
in my mind now, uh, a sortitional or very broad-based group of people taking decisions. But when a nation is at war, you need someone who's going to act as uh, like they had in Rome, a temporary dictator. Um, and because the nation is no longer questioning decisions, it has to win, it has to reach a goal. And I yep. think that, that dis- having that distinction in one's mind is, is, is really important to understand that uh, you don't need a team leader the whole time. And the, as we've seen so clearly in recent years, the electoral system is producing not one team leader, but several team leaders. And they're, and they're fighting each other to such an extent that the population no longer knows who to follow. They, you know, most, most elections that I'm seeing these days, people are getting into parliament with uh, less than 40% of the actual population support. Whereas if you take that to the citizens' assemblies that I've been attending in Europe, in Europe. Yeah. they will typically uh, not accept a proposal unless it gets more than 66% of the people assent, which automatically gives you that sense of consensus, which is increased by the fact, for instance, at the last French assembly I went to on the end of life, which went at the end 75% for lifting the ban on euthanasia and assisted suicide and 25% against. Most of the people who were in the 25% signed off on the report advocating lifting the ban because they felt that during the 27 days of discussions, their points of view had been taken into account in the final report. And therefore, this was a consensual way forward that would be accepted by the community. So France as the community. Yeah. So this is where you're raising such rich things. So I would go further in a couple of respects. On the very point you've just raised, you've said that they agree because they've been heard and they say, oh, well, you know, in, it's all in the, in the spirit of fair play. I, I don't know if you've seen the, the draft of a documentary that's being made in the United States, and I'm just getting the title here. It's called Goodbye Elections. It's a documentary made about a citizen jury held, I think it was in Michigan, and it was about COVID. And you had anti-vaxxers and... Uh, quite left-wing people, and it gets fairly testy. And at the end of this documentary, they're all in tears with how much they love each other. (laughs) I mean, it's completely incredible. And so what is happening is it's not just, oh, well, I accept that this is a democracy and I didn't get my way, that plenty of the people in this citizen jury were Trump supporters, and I don't. Trump is quite obviously not a Democrat in any sense. Presumably, some of them thought that January the 6th was okay. Uh, But they all were Democrats. They were all bought into the idea, totally, uh, to use a a shocking word, they're totally brainwashed to think that America's a democracy and they buy into it. They support that. But what happens is when they see democracy as competition at all costs, when they see democracy as a competition to misrepresent your opponent, they, they just... They just want out. They think it's just hopeless. There is this quite sublime sense of love through difference, of love through mutual vulnerability. Uh, And, of course, our electoral system is the exact opposite of any kind of vulnerability. The Australian Treasurer has just released a budget. Seems like quite a good budget to me. He's in interviews and they say, is it inflationary? He says it's not inflationary because we came upon a windfall in our revenue because, as you know, Australia is a big energy exporter and energy prices have gone through the roof. And then he says we banked 82% of the windfall. In other words, all of it came in and we just used it to pay our bills, not to give away favours. Now, that means that 18% wasn't saved and it was given to people. But of course, you can't then say, yeah, yeah, well, okay, that's a bit inflationary, but give me a break. He's got to say it's not inflationary. I'm not being critical of him here. This is the way the game is played. If he didn't do that, then the very next day, the newspapers would say Treasurer concedes inflationary budget. The high point of this in Australian politics for me was when Gareth Evans was the shadow treasurer and the Labor Party came out with a sort of no new taxes promise. So... uh, Journalists asked Gareth questions, and the answer to all these questions was, well, we're not saying that absolutely everything in a 4,000-word tax code won't be changed. The next day in the newspapers, big headline, 
Gareth Gaff. So that's that's vulnerability in our system, our ability to speak to each other and to concede weaknesses and have that vulnerability reciprocated. You do need to be in a trusting relationship, yes, uh, yes. which is why the Citizens' Assembly is such a remarkable uh, thing, is that people within the context of 150 people thrown together at random uh, they do build up uh, uh, relationships, as you were referring to, you know, very deep emotional relationships as well. And when they start trusting each other, when they start deliberating together, when they start getting information together, they are moving towards an, a new solution to the problem, which is a very fascinating process to watch. Uh, of course, it doesn't happen uh, overnight, as it were. It, it takes not only do you need a, a very fair random selection process so that everyone believes that it's truly random and re reflecting the community involved. You need also to have very good support from the authority, the currently our governments, that have to say, I will do most of what you suggest. So it is worth your time spending all, all your energy reaching this solution. Obviously, they have to be supported uh, with money and, uh, and time and, uh, and uh, time off work and, and, and pay, if necessary, childcare and so forth. And then you also have a really important thing, which most people don't think about, and my father's book actually doesn't take this into account, um, is facilitation. You need people sitting on those deliberation tables, making sure that everyone's given a chance to speak, making sure that the notes are taken properly, making sure that the red line of the discussion is captured and that repetition is not, uh, people don't waste time with repetition. And it's a miraculous process because it, it really does bring the discussion to a new place, um, which, you know, involves a lot of people not just changing their minds but becoming firmer in their opinions. And interestingly, this also shades into a very principal argument of my father's book about the, the way we overestimate experts and underestimate lay people. I think anyone who's served on a jury has experienced that sort of open-eyed moment of, my goodness, so many of these people are so sensible because most people are not used to just dealing with uh, w w yeah. with another person uh, in, in in such context, and it it, it does um, show you that if you um, you know the essential the essential quality of an expert is that they know how to do something that they've been doing for a long time, like building a roof. Um, which I happen to be watching in front of me right now. Uh, these people have been building roofs for decades, and I'm watching them. I'm terrified watching them, but they know exactly what they're doing because they're very practiced at, at it. Yeah. And they're, they're building this kind of roof. But if I ask them to suddenly um, make me a, a canvas awning, they wouldn't know how to do it. And yeah. so even though both are coverings, the expert roof builder is not an expert awning cover. And so if you want to know what to cover your space with, you do not want to ask the roofer because for the roofer, it's always going to be a roof. And for the awning maker, it's always going to be an awning. You need someone else. And to, to put together all the factors you need to make the choice between an awning and a roof, you need an ordinary person using their common sense. And not just one person, but a group of people that can bring yeah. into the discussion all the points of view. The people who are going to see this space, the people who are going to live in this space, the people who may uh, rent bits of the space. You, you get ideas that will take you further. And my, as my father says, that actually even I think the, the etymology of the word expert implies uh, unchangingness. And the, the essence of a new political decision is that it has to reflect an, the, an answer to a new situation. And this is what people very rarely think about. And if you, if you to look at our current electoral system more deeply, think about the party political program. This is clearly a work of enormous effort goes into writing these things, and especially if you come into a coalition between two parties, the, the immense amount of stress that goes into harmonizing everyone's expertise on how they would deal with a known situation. And then COVID comes. Yeah. And no one knows what to do because it's completely, you know, for them, it's completely new. Although I think we've had. Yeah, so, so that's very nice. So, so many, there, so many things there. I'm going to kind of make my own notes verbally. Firstly, because these are all new things to me or relatively new things to me. And they're the best sort of new thing, which is that they're completely obvious once pointed out. Uh, and that is that democracy will live or die according to people's ability to change their mind that the current way we have set up democracy massively gets in the way of that. Uh, and the very example that you give, even when you've got a multi-party system, which is much more common in Europe than 
in English-speaking countries, um, even when you've got a multi-party system, there's so much, there's such lack of trust between the players that they write contracts with each other to say, we'll do, you know, we promise this if you get that. And then something new comes up and everyone has to change their mind a little. And there's no body, there's no, that, that there is very often a completely inadequate um, trust um, and quite, unnecessar- uh, quite unnecessarily so. Uh, and then, and so that's, um, so that's brought along, brought in two points changing one's mind change itself the fact that things change and that's what we ne- what we need politics for to respond to change that's completely central and then i'm embarrassed to say that you've that, that i call myself an economist but you just pointed out to me the importance of the division of labor inside a citizen jury uh, that the citizen jury but i think it's a, i mean it is something that i've thought about not quite as I haven't thought of all those divisions, but I've thought very much that simply saying, as so many people who are seeking to promote, um, who are seeking to promote sortition, I'd like I'd like to add in one one thing that to, to in in the process of a citizens' assembly that's also missing in our current debating chamber yep. uh, methods of of reaching decisions is th- this whole idea of deliberation um, and. To bring in Aristotle, because I've just spent so much time editing my father book, my father's book, I can remember these things. Um, yeah. He points out that the quality of deliberation, the depth of deliberation, the the scope of it improves if you have all classes of people, all yes. ranks of people, yes. all types yeah. of people participating. Yeah. yeah. Another thing that he points out is that, and this is something that came up after the invention of the word participatory democracy in the 1960s, and where people like Professor Jane Mansfield did research on uh, on the kind of groups that were cropping up as sort of self-governing groups. And it became very clear to her that if you have direct participation with more than about 20 people, you can no longer have a reasonable discussion because yeah, people yeah. just can't, can't follow right. more than 20 people. Yeah. And so from this, you can coming back to what you were saying earlier about the, the, the different groups of people that might uh, benefit from uh, this kind of randomly selected government. Um, you know, most people think that the bigger the group that you have to run, say, the United States or China or Russia, you, the, 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 the more you need a single figure or monarch in charge. Whereas, in fact, the reverse may very well be the case. I mean, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the way that Russia mm-hmm. and China are run today, I think it's uh, uh, these are extremely authoritarian regimes and uh, suppressing uh, a, a, a lot of human spirit in the process. I mean, I'm sure that China's a very diverse place in, inside its borders, but uh, it, it is very strictly run. And, but, you know, the, 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 the fact is that if you look at the maths, if you, if, you, if, you, if you do make it mandatory for people to serve in these, these assemblies, a randomly selected selection of the, the population will work. It will produce all the people you need to reflect all parts of society. And, and there's another concept that is also very important. I'm, I was quite surprised when I read the book to see how radically um, my father believed in the, in the redistribution of wealth. Um, but if, if you're going to do that, you're going to need it for everyone to think that the sharing of whatever it is that needs to be shared, and for instance, in the climate debates, it's clear that the sharing of the, the burden of what we all have to do less of has got to be equally done. And, in, and if it is not equally done, people will not accept it. If it's not done in a way that everyone can see that everyone has put their fair share in, no one will, will, will get going on it. And again, here's a way that... Um, that citizens' assemblies can help us solve a very real problem that we face right now. Yeah. And yeah. even if mathematically, in sampling, um, in order to, it'd be a bit difficult to see how this, the deliberation side of this would work at such huge scale. But we have, what, about 8 billion people in the world now to, to, to realistically represent every subgroup in that 8 billion. You don't need that many people, it is several thousand. But, yeah, you know, yeah. several thousand is about half the size of a dentist convention in the United States. It's, it's not impossible to imagine that you could have at least a sounding board. Uh, yeah. that would be- well, if you, if you had it in Australia, we have dentist conventions that are a lot smaller than that. So I think we should have it in Australia. 
<laughs> We've spoken a lot about the political side of things, but there are an awful lot of G.K. Chesterton quotes that I find myself liking a great deal. At the front of the book, there are four quotes, and one of them is by G.K. Chesterton. And I think it is a very powerful one, and it's something which I have, it's also kind of dear to my heart, um, but not something that is that is really embraced very much. And the quote is, all real democracy is an attempt to bring the shy people out. And I love that uh, because I just see such a bias, such a bias in electoral politics towards the highly educated, the wealthy, the self-assertive, um, uh, the narcissistic, <laughs> the Machiavellian, uh, uh, the, psycho uh, the psychopath. Um, not all politicians are psychopaths, but maybe 1% of the population are psychopaths and maybe 4% of politicians are psychopaths. That's a, that's a nasty bit of bias um, that we've got in the system. As you were mentioning from that, uh, d that documentary in the United States, yep. people are really uh, so moved by their experience of actually participating in yep. the last... This, this Paris convention, people were standing up and saying that they were these this, these 27 days that they'd spent together over nine weekends had been the best time of their life, yes. which is quite uh, amazing. And I could see why as well, because they, they, they'd, they'd really been taken seriously in a way perhaps they hadn't before. Um, but also the hostess side of it, 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 it can't happen on its own. It has to be uh, formed and guided and uh, and helped it, it it doesn't happen on its own. It's a whole process that has to happen for the best result to, to come out. So um, G.K. Chesterton was perhaps wiser than he knew. Well, yes, and G.K. Chesterton's hostess, he's writing early in the 20th century where people are not going to be as timid as we are today about talking about the masculine and the feminine. But it seems to me that in terms of stereotypes, our democracy is very masculine. And um, the, the it is significant that it is the jolly hostess. This is the role of knitting people together in order to explore their differences rather than yeah. highlighting their differences in order for them to compete and to log roll their way towards a 51% majority. It's hard no, to it's imagine. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right on the masculine side of it. Now, the second exciting thing was the most recent election in Australia because what happened was that our conservatives, who are called the Liberal Party here, our conservatives, you know, some of them rather like Donald Trump, and they've been, and a, and a, and a good chunk of them uh, are channeling the US Republicans. And, and, and what happened is that starting in, I think, 2013, a while now ago, a, uh, a particularly bad Liberal Party candidate in a, a regional seat was unseated by an independent uh, and it was a community movement. And this then, uh, the, in the last election, about eight new people like that were elected and they basically um, stole the crown jewels from the Australian Conservative Political Party, all the richest seats, basically. Now, almost all of them were women and they had a particular methodology which came from the Victorian Women's Trust, and it was called the kitchen table methodology, uh, kitchen table conversation methodology. And that's a feminine thing, a kitchen table conversation. And what people found is that the men liked pontificating, as you and I are doing right now, Hugh, and the women would often be the ones who would take that, well, very, you know, quite consistently, the, if you asked who was taking the notes and who was doing behind the scenes work, uh, it was preponderantly women. Uh, so these candidates, they're called the teal candidates, um, uh, a mix of blue to represent the conservatives and green to represent their environmentally uh, aware politics. Um, uh, they are, almost all of them are very articulate, very well educated and very accomplished women. All of those things weren't so unusual in politics when I was a kid. Uh, the women was, but the idea that plenty of MPs were independently accomplished before they turned up in Parliament, well, that's kind of gone as well. Insofar as it can happen in a toxic system, this has tremendously revived it, I think, and 
I just wanted to throw in that element that it has revived it through through the feminine, if I can use that simple word. Um, it has infused Australian politics with um, feminine virtues, uh, and you can decide. You can believe those things are culturally feminine, biologically feminine, or not feminine at all, nothing to do with women at all, you know what types of things I'm talking about, which is knitting people together, not not thinking that the most important thing is to display your power and strength and so on and so forth. And I think, in a, I think, yeah, you go, you go. I think that the word we-minded really encapsulates what you want, mm. so I will definitely mm. be sending you a link to my wife, Jessica Lutz's book. Um, but I think as, as you remark i mean luckily human beings even within the electoral system we are innovators and um, yes. well it's an open it's still an open system that's the great thing it's still an yeah. open system and it's it's it will it can fall prey to well organized people who have a clear idea of what they want to do and can communicate it and people say will say in as i'm as i'm fond of saying in the words of the scene from when harry met sally i'll have what she's having I don't know whether you know whether well, I, what I that is a reference to, but anyway, go on. No idea, but uh, I'm okay. sure it's well, some people will. resonating with the audience. But um, no, I, I think that uh, you're right. It is an open system. And what's also very encouraging is that the kind of experimentation which we need to be uh, to, to, to set up some new ways of, of, of taking decisions and to improve on the current procedures that we, we have uh, they are being backed by some governments. I and mean, look at France. President Macron is actively helping sortition make its mark. Yeah. Um, and in Belgium, where I live, that oh, well, this yeah. weekend, there are four four citizens' assemblies this weekend, and some of them have been integrated into the parliamentary system that is the, into the electoral election-based parliamentary system in a very interesting way. There, the president of the French-speaking parliament of the Brussels region, I won't go into the complications of our dozen or more governments in Belgium, but she has decided that in order for politicians to recover the link that they should have with their electors and with the people, because the problem in Belgium is that people, even though they're legally obliged to vote, they're often voting blanks. And, you know, politicians are people, they want to be appreciated. And this idea that the people is turning against them, she has introduced this idea that in the parliamentary committees, they will bring in three quarters of the participants as randomly selected citizens and one quarter as, as parliamentarians. And in this way, yep. she yep. hopes that not only will politics seem closer to, to, to people, but also they will reintroduce the idea of debate because, yes, <laughs> the, the, um, the, 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 on the continent there are lots of parties, but that's partly because there's a lot of proportional representation in 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 European systems, and what happens with proportional representation, is, of course, is you get lots and lots of different parties, and therefore you have coalition agreements. But this hands all the power to the party elites, and the, as we know, parties are only three percent of the population max, and the the people who run parties are maybe three percent of that three percent. And what the president of the the parliament in in Brussels thought was that. Uh, you know, no longer are we discussing what we are legislating on the parliamentary floor. It's all decided in the back rooms between the coalition partners, according to sort of mm. arcane principles of, uh, of program quid pro quos, and nothing to do with what actually will affect people on the ground or very yeah. little. So, it, it, um, yeah, go. Sorry, sorry. Go yeah, on. There's, you know, there are lots of other places that we can reintroduce random selection to 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 get over this 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 hesitation we have, and I think is one of the reasons that sortition became disassociated with the word democracy in the last two hundred years was this belief that we have to be rational about everything, that mm. everything you know, if you leave something to chance, you are you are somehow being weak, whereas mm. sometimes chance is the most powerful tool in the box. Well, it's your father of all the things I've ever read on sortition, there are a couple of things. It's it's the most Socratic book on sortition, and it, it makes it goes straight at, as you were saying earlier, it goes straight at experts. It basically says experts are just not going to be any good at dealing with new things. Um, and, and he's not a Michael Gove uh, crit criticizer of experts, although I generally have more sympathy than I mean, I try to read other people, what people say 
in the spirit that they were offering it in rather than as a gotcha. And in that sense, I can also even... I can also even um, sympathise with Michael Gove saying we've had enough of experts because, I mean, I think we saw a bit of that during COVID. Uh, Not that there weren't utterly crazy people saying utterly crazy things, but an awful lot of what the experts said was baloney as well. And so everyone everyone was performing. Let's talk a little bit about how we get there because, um, yeah, let's talk about what your father, how your father talks about how you get, if not to utopia, not if not to his utopia, how do you get to a system which has much more recognition of the the value of sortition? Um, do you want to uh, talk a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. It, uh, I mean, I don't think you want to go on his utopian route because his utopia starts with a scenario that he wipes out the entire global population except for yeah, Antarctic I thought that was a little, Yeah, I thought uh, worthy of a worthy of a high ideologue, really. I mean, <laughs> he's obviously he's obviously got ambitions of of a, of sorts. Yeah, and they they survive, but and he shows how the um, the sortition gradually introduces itself among a society of a group of scientists at this Antarctic station, and how they overcome the very life or death problems that they face uh, yep. through discussion. On the on the, it's mostly about deliberation because they are all part of the assembly to start with. But uh, yeah. it's a it's a fascinating story, and they repopulate the world from New Zealand of all places. But anyway, the um, the, the way he has about twelve entrance points, I think, in his final chapter, where he he gets a bit more realistic about how things should be. Um, he he thinks that, for instance, on television might be a place where you would see. Uh, uh, randomly selected panels discussing things, and. That hasn't happened the way he imagined it. I think the no. television to entertain more. But interestingly, um, there's been a recent program in Britain, uh, I think uh, masterminded by Alistair Campbell, the the former Labour Party communications director under Tony Blair, yep. in which 12 randomly selected people instructed on in how to become a prime minister. And uh, Alistair Campbell was... Um, uh, on his podcast said he was really struck by how sensible these 12 ordinary people were. And this is, uh, Alistair Campbell can't be the easiest person to get along with. So this is, uh, I think, high praise. Um, he said, my father suggests in his book that uh, you might uh, use. Uh, well, hang on. Let me, let me just, let me just interrupt you there because maybe, uh, maybe, well, maybe after this uh, talk, if, if you're interested, I actually designed a, a TV program around this idea um, because the thing that your father doesn't face is that if you just say to a TV station, broadcast our citizen jury, they're not interested in that because if you look at the sort of the values of reality TV, for instance, they're constantly hyping things up. They're desperate to keep people entertained and there are boring spots. Uh, I do think, but but I think you can, uh, I, I think you can, uh, restructure a TV show. In fact, look, I'll just sketch it out for you. So take a program like, I think it's called, it's called Q&A in Australia and it's called Question Time in the UK, which is typical thing. Uh, it's a studio audience and talking heads. So you throw away the talking heads, you put a question in to the plenary, and then you make sure that they're representative people. Represent you use some sort of mechanism of sampling to make sure that they're a, a representative sample. You stick them in the Big Brother house for a week, and you make the and you make a one-hour program out of this. Um, uh, you make a one-hour program, and the focus of the program is on who changes their mind, how they change their mind, why they change their mind. Who, cha- who helped them change their mind. So it's a, a personally involving uh, and one hopes intellectually involving program. The, uh, one, could, one could connect this up with politics as practiced at the moment because, for instance, let's say there was an election on, you might have a series of these panels and the spokespeople for the different parties on, say, health or education or defence might come and give their opening pitches, people might give their opening responses, and then this would happen again at the end of the process. And you would ask for, say, an afternoon with these people, and you would film it all. You wouldn't, uh, you'd edit it quite heavily. But the what you're doing 
is you're making the focus of our democracy the people's deliberation, not the to- not the performance of the talking heads. Uh, so I think that anyway, that's my sketch of how uh, if you're a television producer, you might be able to produce a program which people would watch. <laughs> Very important for television producers uh, that people would watch, and it seems to me. If you did this during an election, particularly, it could actually become very influential. There are when political TV is at its apogee, apogee uh, the programs tend to come and go. But when they're at their most influential, they'll often define the week in politics. And so, my my kind of aspiration for this program would be that it would be uh, you'd everyone would tune into it on a Monday night, as when we all used to. Well, not me, but. Some of the people used to tune into Q and A. I don't know when question time is. I think it's on a Thursday, isn't it, in the UK? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm now terribly worried about our production values. You see, I'm just terrified. <laughs> what if people? What if people change channel, listen to a different podcast? Yeah, that's the thing. Is I think that if people feel they're being preached at on on yeah. on television, they may not react very well. But um, yeah, yeah. Well, the idea is that they're not preached at. That their this plays to their you know, to them, it honours them. We've really talked for a long time and I might just introduce a kind of conclude. I'm going to go back to what I said struck me when I mentioned the Chesterton quote and the jolly hostess. I've forgotten the hostess was jolly, but I remember the hostess. Um, and this is your father. Um, he's. This is after he has sketched out the uh, the ways in which one might observe selection by lot starting to gather uh, popularity and be applied elsewhere. The essential case for sortition, as it was for extended franchise in John Stuart Mill's day, is that democracy liberates. The less that people feel belittled and the more they feel they belong to society, the greater will be their zest for life, the more fruitful the energy they will display. All one can predict is that once the democratic element in a mixed constitution is seen to work well, there will be pressure to extend it to bring it into the legislative, executive and financial arms of government. So I just want to kind of talk about that zest for life. And uh, this is something I can't prove. I would like to have talked to your father about this, because if you think of well-known explosions of creativity, well-known explosions of creativity in certainly Western culture, with which I'm much more familiar than Eastern culture, I'd say, you know, I suppose I'm going to count things like, uh, well, of about eight events, maybe six events, one of them's obviously ancient Athens, one of them's obviously Florence. Those are two places in which sortition was very actively perpetrated. Um, Probably... A less spectacular but still quite extraordinary renaissance occurred in Venice. And Venice, your your father devotes a chapter to Venice and he rather cheekily describes it as kind of a democracy, (laughs) which is going a bit far, I think. But what it was, was an aristocracy or an oligarchy, but it was an oligarchy of about two to 3,000 people and they were all equal. And that, that gave the political system incredible stability. Um, so they went for 500 years with, without a major civil war or coup, and this is in, of all places, Italy. Um, now, it is true that their situation on the lagoon was a, you know, was a safe space, as we say these days, from marauding invaders, but it is an extraordinary performance. And I didn't realise until... Um, I didn't realise until maybe three or four months ago, um, that that, that if you give two and a half thousand people equality with each other and tell them to run government, they basically ended up with a system in which the head of state, the Doge, had less power than King Charles. Uh, Well, about the same amount of power as King Charles. But the thing was that, so the Doge was an elected, uh, an elected monarch and they were chosen through this through endless processes of sortition where people were randomly selected and asked to pick the best person, a little bit like the Pope is chosen, and they would get sent into a conclave and that no one is allowed to, uh, no one can electioneer, 
uh, voting is secret, so there's not even any point in bribing someone. And this produced a constitutional monarchy. I thought the British monarchy was the first constitutional monarchy which more or less got rid of the power of the king of the of the head of state. Well, Venice had done it by the 13th or 14th century, but at the same time, the monarch was a deeply was one of the most respected people of the community. So they actually played that role of leadership, but not in the sense of having huge amounts of power. Uh, a remarkable piece of constitutional alchemy, if I can say that. Anyway, I've, I've actually now talked about two things, that cultural side of things and, the, and then return back to the political. But I wanted to invite any, uh, any concluding reflections on any of that that you might have. Well, first of all, the zest question, it's absolutely true. There is no question that to, 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 to my mind that this, the liberating sense of um, empowerment and uh, meaning in life that is given to, given to people who are asked to take decisions together. And there's a kind of buzz that you get in the room yes, when you hear exactly the right. which is such a, it's such a lovely sound. It's such a positive sound. It really makes you feel that the humanity is not the destructive, selfish thing that normally. It, it, well, well, it is. It's playing to our DNA. This is how we yeah. evolved. This is how we kept ourselves safe from lions. Um, right. It's also how we kept ourselves safe from other tribes, which is a, which is the downside. But it is. It is just playing to our makeup. It's playing yeah. to what I call Aristotelian man rather than Hobbesian man. Uh, it's playing to people. Mm. Sorry, go on. And going back to what you were saying about ancient Athens being um, the probably the state that used sortition to the maximum, and indeed not for very long. I mean, it had, and there were several others of the thousand or so Greek city-states that used democracy, uh, yeah. democracy in the full sense of sortitional democracy. But Athens was the leading one, and Athens is by far the most influential civilization that has ever been produced. And when yes. you in terms of half a football stadium of people uh, producing 80 or 90 names that we are still invoking it every day. It is, it's amazing. And what did the Athenians ascribe this enormous cultural, and scientific and philosophical achievement to? Uh, sortition, the way that they were governed. They thought that that was what made them special. And uh, what is amazing is the way the world forgot, sort of deliberately forgot that, um, probably because, you know, oligarchs and, and autarchs and kings and presidents didn't want us to discuss this kind of thing. Um, they, they suppressed, people suppressed this, this, this information. And it's wonderful that we're talking about it again today. Well, that is a terrific, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't script that, but I could have scripted that or rather you, well, you scripted it on the fly. A fantastic place to end on. Uh, thank you very much for uh, talking to me. Um, it's been just a just a delight, and I'm afraid I'm going to require you to do it again sometime. Thank you very much, and it's been great to talk to you. Thank you.